Well, Mark chapter 14, as we continue, uh, Jesus now has begun the footsteps toward the cross. And uh, we find ourselves, um, you know, heading into the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and um, we, we've kind of already been through some of this. Uh, we didn't get very far on last Wednesday. The goal is to finish chapter 14 tonight. It's a long chapter. Um, but we saw kind of a nice little division uh, here in Mark 14 uh, as far as the way the chapter sort of breaks up. And I'll show you just kind of a, a brief outline. Uh, the first section we studied last, last week, verses one through 11, is Jesus in Bethany adored. That's how we'll kind of uh, title these. Jesus in Bethany adored. And we saw, you know, Mary of Bethany uh, worshiping at his feet with the costly ointment. That's verses one through 11. The second section we looked at last week was Jesus in the upper room uh, betrayed. And verses 12 through 25, Jesus started to identify his betrayer as being uh, Judas, as he dipped the sop in the sop at the same time as Jesus. And we already, he already had been betrayed by that time. So we saw that in that second section, Jesus in the upper room uh, betrayed. And then tonight, section three, we begin. It's, um, it's uh, verse 26 through 52. So uh, here we go. Um, we start in verse um, 26. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Um, and um, and verse, verse 26 here is uh, the, just kind of that, that reminder that they sang one hymn. We talked about that a few weeks ago, how uh, sometimes I think we get the emphasis wrong in churches. And I'm not gonna go over that again, but just keep that in mind, tucked away. Uh, never choose a church based on its worship team or worship director. Um, it's nice to have good worship and it's wonderful to sing songs of praise the Lord. And we love that here at Athey, but you only see a tiny mention of that in the Bible. Um, people come to church with these preconceived ideas that, well, it has to be a wonderful worship team. Uh, no, Jesus saying, hey, him. That's pretty much what we have in the New Testament about worship teams uh, and bands and fogs rolling off the stage and lights and all that stuff. You don't really see anything else about that uh, in the New Testament. Maybe singing psalms and hymns uh, to, to one another, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. You know, Ephesians talks a little bit about that. And then we see in Revelation, the worshiping around the throne. So worship in church, I think, is kind of, you know, singing songs is heaven practice. We're gonna be singing around the throne of God, but I think it's gonna be different. Uh, I think my voice won't sound like it does now. Thank the Lord. When I'm in heaven, I'm gonna give a new body. I'm gonna sound like Pavarotti up there in heaven. Who's that guy? That'll be me in heaven because I'll have an amazing voice in heaven. But but anyway, but what are some other things you should perhaps, let's just kind of throw it out to you guys. If you were picking a church, what's something you should probably consider? Doctrine, doctrine's important, that's important. Well, they love Jesus, so it's all good, right? Uh, well, as it turns out, there's some really bad teaching out there. Watch out for the, the teaching, doctrine, what else? The word, is the word kind of central? Because while the Bible speaks about one hymn, when Jesus sang in the upper room, it talks about teaching the word and, and instruction of the word. Uh, the, the Bible talks about, that's one of the offices in the church is Bible teachers. I would, there'd be teachers among you and, uh, and Paul told young Timothy, do not neglect the reading of scripture in the, in the congregation and um, you know, teaching, doctrine, those are important. What else is an important thing to look for? Huh? Prayer, somebody said it, prayer. Prayer is something uh, that you should probably look for as well. Is there prayer happening in the church? And this is one that I have to admit, uh, if, if we drop the ball, like it's probably prayer. 
Uh, if you're counting how many times the New Testament says stuff about worship, well, it doesn't hardly say anything in the New Testament about songs and praise and worship teams and stuff like that, but it does talk a lot about pray. Pray without ceasing. Um, I would that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Like the Bible really emphasizes prayer and the word. And um, there's other things that are even mentioned more that you might not like, you know, think about, but uh, fellowship, koinonia is the Greek word for that. They continued steadfastly with the apostles' doctrine, that's doctrine, prayer, uh, the breaking of bread, which is the communion table, I believe. Also, they did do love feasts uh, where they had big like church get togethers. And I think we need more of those uh, where we have lots of food and barbecues and stuff. Those are great. Um, uh, it's been a little harder at the size of church that we are. One of the things that I love about our, the smaller groups, uh, we have a lot of men's breakfasts that get together and have meals together. Um, we have a lot of the volunteer teams that get together around meals uh, that, you know, uh, that are plugged into Athe. Like meals are a major part of what we do here. Uh, and it's a good part of fellowship. But in Acts 2.42, those are the big four, prayer, uh, breaking of bed, bread, fellowship, and the apostles' doctrine. Those were the things the church continued steadfastly in. Um, so just, just kind of a reminder, you know, there that, um, you know, uh, the music thing, the simplicity. Um, now, in verse 26, it says they sang a hymn. What hymn did they sing? Well, surely it was Amazing Grace, right? Uh, no. Um, if you'll notice most of your margins, and if you have a margin reference Bible, it says a psalm or a psalm. Um, that's probably a better uh, way to put it because um, the Jews had a custom of singing the Hallel Psalms uh, during the Passover feast. That was, this, this wouldn't have been new. Jesus wasn't breaking into new territory by singing a hymn or a psalm. Um, but the, the custom of the Jews would be to sing the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They're known as the Hell Psalm, Hallel Psalm, or the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. You say Egyptian, what does that Egyptians have to do with it? Well, it focuses on the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, and that's why sometimes you'll see these referred to as the Egyptian Hallel. These Psalms were recalling the Jewish feasts, especially Passover. They'd bring these Psalms out, depending on which tradition was being followed. One or two of the Psalms would be recited before the, the meal, and then the rest would be after the meal. That would, that would happen there in the Jewish Seder dinner or Passover dinner. Um, so it's very possible Jesus was just going along with regular old tradition, uh, you know, singing a psalm at the end of dinner. That would have been probably one of the Hillel Psalms. Now, there is an implication that's more than that though. Um, uh, if you would, the, the Hillel Psalms are pretty, pretty amazing because they are about the departure from Egypt and, the, and God saving the Jews out of the Egyptians' hand and deliverance and what have you, salvation from bondage and all that. It's all part of the Hillel Psalms. But Jesus in singing this, I wonder if he's giving a whole new meaning because all the Old Testament practices are pointing to Jesus. So the Passover, Jesus Christ is our Passover. The Passover is pointing to Jesus. And, and now Jesus is reading, you're singing the Hallel Psalms um, at the Last Supper and infusing it with a not new meaning, but perhaps maybe even the more intended meaning to, the, to begin with. Because it's not all about Israel leaving Egypt. It's all about Jesus saving Israel and all the Gentiles as well. The salvation that he promised, you know, the, the Jews from, you know, deliverance from Egypt, from slavery, from human bondage. Now Jesus is gonna move that into salvation from spiritual bondage and, and grave danger because of the penalty of sin. And, and so these Psalms, you can almost hear the, the melodious chant of Jesus singing them, but, but you know, what did that mean to Jesus? 
uh, to sing it at Passover. Uh, does it ever mean anything for you to sing a song at church? I hope it does. I hope we sing intelligently and we're actually thinking through the words. What do you think Jesus was thinking when he was singing these Hallel Psalms uh, uh, at Passover? Um, you know, uh, would you flip over to Psalm 118 real quick? Because most tradition tells us that Jesus was singing from Psalm 118. Uh, and I say tradition, uh, church history. It's not really, the Bible doesn't really tell us this is what he's saying, but this is what tradition tells us. But um, this would have been likely the, the Psalm that he would have, um, but I just wanna show you little snippets of this Psalm 118 that Jesus would have been singing um, at uh, this Passover dinner. Keep in mind, he's getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, be judged and put on the cross. Like it's right there. He's right at the very door. The hour has come, you know? And now he's singing this Psalm. What does he think? Well, look at Psalm 118, um, verse, starting in verse six. It says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Um, you see, right there, do you think Jesus was singing this Psalm 118, this Hallel Psalm? Because how much this applies to our suffering Savior as he's getting ready and all his friends, all humanity is gonna bail on him. God became a man, lived among us, and, and decided to, to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. But what's incredible is the fact that Jesus was suffering in all points like as we are. Do you realize Jesus, um, as we're gonna see this tonight in Mark 14, Jesus is gonna agonize and be sorrowful to the nth degree. And so do you think this Psalm would bring comfort to our suffering savior? I'll bet it did. That is one of the great uses, by the way, of singing songs is, is encouragement. Man, uh, if you find yourself down, sing a psalm. Not just a song, but sing a psalm. That's why tonight we sang, you know, Psalm 27, Psalm 46, uh, Psalm 18. Uh, all, the, all those were psalms tonight that we were singing. And we can remind ourselves of truth. And that's what Jesus was doing. Jump ahead in Psalm 118, uh, verse 16, if you're still there. Uh, it says, uh, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doth valiantly. Um, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Um, you can see undertones of resurrection power in that Psalm as well. So while the Jews didn't necessarily think of Psalm 118 as messianic, we can look in retrospect and say, wow, this Psalm was kind of messianic about the resurrection, power over life and death, and not putting trust in human flesh. Jesus was gonna use this Psalm at that dinner uh, to be sort of encouraged. Um, uh, by the way, I, I'd, I'd give you an assignment this week. Would you read the Hillel Psalms? Psalm 113 through 118. I think you'll find yourself encouraged. They're very encouraging Psalms. Um, David nails down some emotions that we deal with in modern times. The same emotions, the same fears and struggles. David uh, writes about those in these Psalms. <clears throat> and he asks questions in the Psalms here, but he also brings about answers. So um, I love this. Jesus is, is leaning on the Psalms. Uh, that's one of his things before he goes to the cross. What do you do when you're suffering? When you feel like you're going through a darkest hour like Jesus is about to go through? Are, are you one who leans on the Psalms? And, and we'll see what else Jesus leans on tonight and it'll be a good lesson. So he sings a hymn 
And now they're making their way down the Valley Kidron uh, up the Mount of Olives. And we pick that up now back in Mark uh, 14 um, in uh, verse 27. It says there in Mark 14, 27, and Jesus saith unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that, I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Now we've covered some of these things when I did a spattering of these scriptures two weeks ago on, on the weekend service, we talked about Peter's failure um, and how failure is not fatal. Um, if you handle it correctly. And Peter would and did, even though he failed huge. Uh, uh, if you missed that study, um, it was an important one about failure. We all face that. Um, but because we kind of talked about a lot of these scriptures, some of them will be familiar. But um, Jesus said, all of you will be scandalized. That's the Greek word, scandalizo, offended by me this night. You're gonna be scandalized and run for your lives. Jesus predicted that. But I also want, one of the main things I want you to see tonight is how Jesus has complete control over this whole situation. It's really unlike, I think the movies about Jesus um, have done a disservice to the story because you almost see Jesus in the movies, uh, you know, shocked. Oh no, here's the, here's the Roman soldiers and the high priests and oh no, they're dragging me off as he's kicking, kind of dragging his heels, you know, fighting. If Jesus wanted to fight him, who would win? Like, don't forget, Jesus knew exactly what's gonna happen. Did you see in our text right here? It says in verse, um, verse uh, you know, 27, you're all gonna scatter like sheep. Uh, verse 28, but after I'm risen, now, now remember, this is like the fourth time Jesus has told them in no uncertain terms, you guys, I'm gonna die on a cross and I'm gonna raise up from the dead. Um, so why do you suppose the disciples weren't looking for a risen savior after Jesus died on the cross? I mean, you might see a little bit, some of the women may have had somewhat of an idea of, of the resurrection. You gotta give the women credit in the story of the, of the cross and the grave and the resurrection because they're the ones who seemed more ready and more open to the idea. But what was it within the disciples? They'd heard it multiple times. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be crucified on a cross in Jerusalem. And on the third day, I'm gonna rise up from the grave. But they seem to not be looking for that at all. Um, have you ever wondered if sometimes the Lord speaks into your life and you just kind of go, well, what was that all about? Oh, well, la, 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 I'm gonna forget about that. Uh, like it's just kind of out of your wheelhouse or out of your ability to understand. I almost wonder if that's what, what the disciples are doing. Oh, you're gonna die and yeah, rise from the grave. Okay, uh, whatever. Uh, which one of us is the greatest, by the way? Uh, like they just don't seem to be focused on what Jesus was saying. Um, and it's a little shocking. Uh, it's a little shocking that they didn't get it. But then I have to ask myself the question, what are the things the Lord's trying to show me? That I'm like, oh yeah, whatever, Lord. Um, you know, have you ever wondered if the Lord had shown you your whole life story and what's gonna happen to you? Um, would you have moved forward with your life? I mean, you know, honestly, I, was, I wanted to be a pastor. Like from, by the time I was 12 years old, I, was, I wanted to be a Bible teaching pastor, 12 years old, that was my goal. But if you showed me uh, the sneak preview of what would happen after I started a church and after years, and then what, if you showed me what I was doing now, I would have run the opposite direction. I would have said, no way, uh, that's crazy. I would never be able to do anything like that. And it would have totally freaked me out. Um, you know, in some ways, I, I think the disciples are just not really ready to understand what's, what's really happening in the story. Um, so I want you to see that, that, that Jesus is in total control. He's clarifying everything that's gonna happen. He even tells them instructions. After I die, I'm gonna raise something. I'll meet you guys in Galilee, okay? Got it? Ready, break. 
That's kind of the way it goes here, but they, they, they don't have it and this kind of cracks me up. Now, um, <clears throat> one thing you'll notice there in verse 27, and I like to draw attention to every time <clears throat> you can check the prophecy fulfilled box, um, Zechariah 13, seven uh, is being fulfilled uh, right as we speak. Jesus is quoting from Zechariah. If you can jot it down in your notes, Zechariah 13, seven, where he said, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. This is Jesus saying, I'm fulfilling what Zechariah the prophet was talking about tonight. And you guys are the sheep that are gonna be scattered. I'm the shepherd that's gonna be smitten. Um, that's, that's a fulfillment. So we need to take note when Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus are fulfilled in the New Testament. And there's over 300, people have counted. And this is one of those 300 fulfillments uh, as it turns out. But then uh, verse 28, you know, he says, okay, after I go, I'm gonna rise up uh, from the grave and I'll meet you over there in Galilee. Um, now in verse 29, um, we see this whole dialogue we looked at a few weeks ago, verse 29, but Peter said unto him, although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise, likewise also said they all. Um, have you ever noticed the more... Um, confidence we put in our own flesh, the harder the fail is when we realize we didn't have the strength in our own flesh. Peter seems really, really confident in his flesh. And this is part of the thing we looked at in Peter's failure a couple of weeks ago. But um, you know, a sign that I've, I've noticed that happens with me and maybe with you, something to give you a little red flag, maybe you can recognize when you're putting confidence in your flesh, is when you speak the more vehemently. Um, I heard of a pastor who wasn't real sure about the point that he was making and in his notes in his Bible, he wrote, this is a weak point, so pound the pulpit. <laughs> like the harder, if you, I don't know if I'm making a good point, so pound the pulpit harder. I, I, I wonder sometimes about that, like even with pastors and sermons, like the, I've noticed the harder they're yelling and making it more intense and more dramatic and all that stuff, the weaker their points as points you are. Um, you know, Jesus didn't pound the pulpit. He just spoke truth so powerfully that people said, wow, he's got authority. Not like the scribes, not like the Pharisees. Um, you know, and, and in some ways we can all fall into that category. We, we all, the weaker our you know, opinion, the weaker our flesh and our confidence. Peter's saying, the more vehemently, I would die. Like you can almost hear an intensity here. I would die before I would betray you. What are you talking about, Jesus? Like he's, he's all the more, as it says here in the King James, you know, but he spake the more vehemently. Um, the story is told of the lion and the mouse. The lion was roaring with his huge loud roar. The little mouse came up and said, why do you do that? Why do you, why do you roar? And the lion looked at him and said, advertising. <laughs> I roar to let everyone know that I'm coming and everybody should be afraid for their lives. Well, the mouse thought, that's so cool. I wanna do that. So the mouse heads back to his little mouse village and um, the mouse got his air and just his lungs puffed up, ready to roar as loud as he could. He went, squeak. <laughs> just loud enough for the cat down the hall to hear him and gobble him all up. That's so funny, you guys care about a fictitious mouse. <laughs> the moral to the story, don't roar if you ain't got the goods. 
Um, I think there's a lot of people that roar today. Man, we're roaring. And people roar on Instagram and they roar on Twitter and they roar in the news and they roar in politics and they roar, roar. And it's like the more they roar, the more weak I think they are. I sometimes think that the, um, it's, the, it's the quietest people you should probably be listening to. Isn't that funny? Um, you know, it's the loud, fast-talking people everybody listens to. Have you ever noticed like in news, if you ever watch news, which if you don't, good for you. Um, but have you ever noticed they give like, interview people like 10 seconds of time. And if you don't make your point in 10 seconds, then, well, there's no time for you. So we're not gonna listen to you because you're a long-winded person if you go past 10 seconds. Do you think we're getting anything really done in 10 seconds? Talking about anything substantive? Um, you know, uh, well, Brett, we're here listening to your long-winded Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, you know, but, but honestly, what you guys are doing here, us sitting and talking about the word of God, uh, just, and not, you know, uh, some short little fast face, you know, flash, 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 flash. Like, um, that's a rare thing. Like, you guys are doing something that's fairly rare. And um, new people come to Athey Creek and they're like, oh, this is, this is like really happening. Well, a lot of people here. And then they sit in one of the sermons like, well, he goes on a long time. <laughs> like, that's the first thing people say. Like, whoa, does he ever come up for air? But I think that um, what we're trying to do here is not, you know, me yak forever, but we're trying to get through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter. We got, we got work to do. And it's something that takes a little time and focus and energy, and it's, it's kind of work. But I think that um, when, we, when we realize it's the word of God that we're talking about here, that's where the power is, that's where the authority is. It's not me or what we're talking about, but we, we, we're saying, Wednesday night, man, let's take some time and dive into scripture and, and not just fast pace it. Um, but anyway, all that to say, we're, we're loud and obnoxious in our culture. And Peter's kind of mimicking that uh, all the more vehemently. And yet he was just dead wrong in what he was trying to say. Um, sad. But verse 32 goes on and it says, and they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here um, while I pray. Gethsemane, uh, this is one of my favorite stops on our Israel trip. When we go to Gethsemane, these are some Athey Creekers. We're walking down the Palm Sunday Road here in Jerusalem. And that little gate is where you go in to see the um, ancient area where Gethsemane was. And it still has olive trees to this day, all those olive trees around. Uh, we, we'll do worship there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, you can look at the olive trees. And, and the word Gethsemane is interesting. It means olive press. That's what it is. It was, a, it was an olive garden then, it's an olive garden now. And you can even walk up and pick an olive off of an olive tree. Some of these olive, these are young olive trees, but some of the olive trees are really ancient, um, not from the time of Christ. They think the oldest one they have there is probably about 1500 years old. You can see the big fat one there in the back. That's probably a thousand year old olive tree. Um, but uh, they, uh, they probably are, the oldest one's probably 1,500 years, but still, it's the same vibe. It's, it, really, it's one of the few places in Jerusalem that kind of looks probably the way it did when Jesus and his disciples went there at nighttime after the Last Supper, and they'd go out and hang out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, um, I told you it's, it's called Olive Press, and it's where they would harvest olives um, for the purpose of olive oil. And it's interesting because the imagery of the Garden of Gethsemane, I want you to kind of see this. The imagery of the Garden of Gethsemane is um, that of olive oil and olive press. Um, when you take an olive at the right time of year for harvest and you squish one of the ones from the Garden of Gethsemane, it's an amazing thing. It really looks like blood. Like you can squish one of these olives and it's blood red, um, which is kind of interesting if you recall um, because Jesus um, was... Uh, 
Uh, we'll talk about how it says, as he, was, as he was praying here in the garden, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood um, in, the, in the olive press, in the, you know, like the, the press that he was in. And um, olive, the oil was used to shine in your, your lamps. It was used for oil in your lamps to brightly shine. There's an uh, interesting correlation to olive oil and Jesus being the light of the world. Um, it was also used to anoint kings um, and uh, Jesus is the king of kings. It was also used for anointing for healing and medicinal purposes, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing. And really the olive oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's really also picturing what Jesus would do by the power of the Holy Spirit. So oil press, olive press, Jesus would be pressed here in this garden as he was waiting to be uh, betrayed. Um, now that, that brings us to the next question. Did Jesus sweat great drops of blood? Yes or no? Oh, a little disagreement tonight. Everybody said yes so quickly. Um, and I understand why, uh, but I just wanna give you a slow down, slow down just a little bit uh, because the only place in the Bible that says that is in Luke's account of this story. It says in Luke 22, 44, it says, and being in agony, prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Um, now this is interesting because if you look up this as it were, it's one word, but it means like we would use, uh, um, what's the word, simile? And uh, you know, when you use simile, it'd be like, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, by the way, you know, th th this, um, this idea of um, like or as uh, simile, there's other times in the, the, the New Testament that use the same word for as it were. Um, like in Matthew 28, th uh, verse three, when it says his countenance was like lightning and his raiment was white as snow. So the same word was used in how, when Jesus was um, you know, uh, brightly shining, uh, like, like lightning. So it's definitely similar. So the big question is, did he sweat great drops of blood? The answer, if, if you wanna be careful, is we're not sure. Um, in fact, it, it might seem that it was more of a, a simile and maybe it didn't really happen literally. Now, it's interesting because it could have happened literally and I wouldn't argue against that either. Um, there is a condition uh, that doctors know about and it's a fatal condition, by the way. If you have this condition, you're gonna die eventually. Uh, it's called hematridosis. Um, interestingly enough, the National Library of Medicine, um, when talking about hematidosis, speaks of the count in Luke's gospel uh, about this situation. So the, the National Library of Medicine believes Jesus had a condition called hematidosis. Um, it's a rare condition which, which humans actually sweat blood through their pores. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci described a soldier who was so stressed out before battle that he started sweating blood. Um, that was a historical account by Leonardo da Vinci. Jesus Christ perhaps experienced the same condition because of the level of stress in the garden. But um, the Greek word, as it were, is hosi in the Greek. And, and if you look up the definition of hosi in the Greek, it's as if or as though. And it also can be in, uh, translated nearly. So that's the weird thing. If you do a word study on this, it's, it does say, and it, his sweat was like, or as if it were blood. Uh, so what do you do with that? Um, well, bro, does that take away from the gospel if you don't believe it? No, 
Jesus shed his blood on the cross. Like this isn't a life, you know, a st- you know faith stopping argument. Uh, I don't can't be a Christian anymore because Jesus didn't sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, no, but th- we're not sure if it, if he did or not. But if you're strictly going with the linguistic scholars, they say it was more of a um, simile, which would be foreshadowing what was about to happen: that Jesus would shed his blood on the cross. Either way. It's minimally a great picture of Jesus being pressed like the olive press there in the garden. It's definitely minimally a picture foreshadowing what's coming. Does that make sense? So uh, I'm just being honest with you guys. Uh, You can look it up and come up with your own uh, opinion on that, but that's uh, something worthy of note. Um, I just want us to be accurate as much as possible. Um, Well, Mark chapter 14 doesn't have that account of his sweating as it were, great drops of blood. That's only in Luke's account. Now, in verse 33, we come to this section where we realize that he, he, he pulls the three main disciples. He's got these concentric circles, you know. John was the disciple he was most close to. Um, but then you got Peter, James, and John. Then you have the 12, then you have the 70, then you have the 100. There's a bunch of different disciples, but the 12 were kind of the main posse of disciples, but the three were the main of the main. And there's three places where Jesus in the Bible calls these three guys, Peter, James, and John, three occasions where he pulls them aside outside of the rest of the group. By the way, the gospel of Mark, as short as it is, it's the only gospel that gives all three of those accounts where Peter, James, and John were pulled aside. You can jot them down. Mark chapter five, verse 37, we talked about Jairus' daughter. Remember when the disciples went into the house with Jesus? Jesus told the other disciples to wait outside. But Peter, James, and John got to go in and see the raising up of Jairus' daughter from the death. Um, Mark 9, 2 was the transfiguration where they looked up and saw no man save Jesus only. And that was Peter, James, and John that went on a very high mountain with Jesus. Uh, that was the second account. And then Mark 14, 33 right here in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is preparing for death. One thing that I wanna note before we move on here is that all three of these times where Jesus pulls Peter, James, and John aside all three of those are dealing with death. That's kind of interesting. Why would Jesus call Peter, James, and John aside for these three things? Where um, in Jairus' daughter, Mark 5, 37, Christ was victorious and had power over death. Uh, In Mark 9, 2, the transfiguration, which Jesus being glorified in death. Um, And then here in Mark 14, 33, in Gethsemane, Jesus was submitted to death. Um, all linked to death. Um, And I believe the reason Jesus would pull these three main guys, Peter, James, and John, they would be the main leaders of the early church, no question about it. And they would have to know these things about Jesus, that Jesus was victorious over death, was crucified, but glorified in death, and then submitted to death. And they would take these experiences to build the faith, even in the early church. And, And I believe these three guys would also bring these experiences to bring some weightiness to the whole early church. Uh, So kind of important. So we see the three guys, Peter, James, and John brought there with them, uh, with him in the garden. Uh, But notice the second part of verse 33, and it says, and he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. Um, Does that seem a little weird? Like Jesus is walking along. Now you guys are all gonna be scattered, but I'm gonna rise from the dead. I'll, I'll meet you guys in Galilee. Uh, and, um, and then Jesus said, you know, Peter, sorry, you're gonna deny me three times. The cock's gonna crow before you deny, you know, that whole, uh, thou shalt deny me thrice before the cock crow twice. Um, 
Um, and then Jesus says, now sit here while I pray. And then all of a sudden, oh, he's shocked and amazed. What's, what's going on there? Um, whenever I see a word that I kind of go, why does that, that doesn't seem to fit. Um, and that's where it is fun. I'm not trying to be fancy with Greek or Hebrew and stuff like that, but there are some things you can kind of get. When you, when you come to the King James where it says, uh, he was sore amazed. First of all, we don't use the word sore anymore in the English, this is old English, sore amazed. We might say totally amazed. Um, but what was he amazed at? Well, the Greek word for amazed and also the Greek word for heavy uh, that's, that's there uh, in verse 33, there are two words that kind of help us. Um, the, the first word, the word for sore amazed is ektambeo, um, means to throw into terror or great amazement, astounded, alarmed, or shocked. Um, now, some people might say, well, Brett, how is Jesus alarmed or shocked uh, or amazed by anything? He knows all things. And I, I, I think that what this does for me, when I look at this Greek word that's used here, it makes me realize, oh yeah, Jesus, don't forget. He was tempted in all points like as we were tempted, yet without sin. Um, so when you are terrorized by what's happening in your life, guess what? Jesus knows how that feels. Um, see, I don't think we, I, I struggled with this when I was younger because I used to kind of think, well, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was you know, sweating, they punched him in the face and you know, all this stuff, but he was Jesus. Um, I'm sure he gave himself some holy anesthetic you know, and worked through that and said, I'm God, so, you know, yeah, punch me again. See if, see, you know, like, can you hit me a little harder? Like, like, you know, but that's not what happened. Jesus felt everything that any person has ever suffered, Jesus felt it even worse. Including this idea of this word, to throw into terror and great amazement. Like, maybe alarmed and shocked at how horrible what he was about to face really was. And Jesus had to deal with that in, in what I would say, human terms and yet without sin. The, the word heavy there at the end of verse 33, he was sore amazed and to be, he began to be very heavy. Um, that word is ademanteo, uh, which means to be troubled or distressed, anguished or depressed. Those are the words that would define Jesus's emotions at this point. So Jesus being tempted in all points as we are, uh, yet without sin, things are becoming clearer about where he was headed and, and the suffering of the cross. And that's, I want you to see the, how, how intense this night is. Um, we read the story, we've read it before. So we kind of go, yeah, he's in the garden, he's praying and all this stuff. But you gotta get, this is a heavy, heavy, heavy story. And it might just be the heaviest place in all the Bible. Well, it goes on in verse 34. And he said unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. So he goes in this really heavy time of prayer, of agonizing in the garden. And we talked about this a little bit on Sunday as we looked at you know, this cup of wrath that he's about to drink. And, um, and what is this hour that he's talking about? We talked about that. But um, the implication that we learned on Sunday was there's no other way for a man to be saved. Jesus said, if it be possible, he said, all things are possible to you, Lord, but if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. And the implication, it's not possible that there's no, there's no other way to be saved. And that's why Sunday we made this as our talking point that Jesus is the only way. 
there's no other way to heaven and Jesus does this. Now, verse 36, um, uh, it says, uh, Abba, Father, what's that all about? Now, I, I always am bummed when people ruin stuff. You know, you know what I mean? Like, um, like the word bishop, we've ruined that word. Um, it's a real word in the Bible. Episkopos is the Greek word, but because of what a bishop is, like I think of chess, I think of liturgical services with pointy hats and big robes and swinging incense, the bishop. Ah, like it's scary, a bishop or whatever. Uh, what is a bishop? Well, we've ruined that word. We've, we've ruined a lot of words uh, in the Bible. Um, but this is one, have you heard, like there's these people that say daddy God all the time. Have you guys heard this? Daddy God. And now there's memes and people making fun of that. Daddy God, you know, like, like you'll hear these comedians on Instagram and social media making fun of people talking about Daddy God. But um, it, it, they've kind of ruined it in some ways. But that's what Jesus is saying. Abba is the, the way they would say daddy in those days. Uh, it's it's a, an endure, endearing term of affection to your father. So it's not just the father, the more formal term. He, he's talking to his uh, his father in more of an endearment sort of way. And uh, that's when he, when he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Um, take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou will. Um, now, um, all this, uh, you know, is, is uh, going on. Meanwhile, what are the disciples doing at this most grave and intense moment? Oh, verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. <laughs> And said unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Come on. Like, like he's marveling here that Peter can't even keep his eyes. Now they've had a busy day. They, they got a, a Seder dinner together and they, they've been doing all this stuff. Uh, you know, and now they're, it's late at night. Some people believe we're nearing midnight at this point. And the guys are sleepy. Um, they would take off their cloaks, by the way, and wrap themselves up like in almost a sleeping bag sort of way and just sort of, sort of go to sleep there. That's what they were doing. Um, and, uh, and Jesus sort of marvels that they won't even, uh, you know, spend this time in his most grave hour. But notice, um, he, he says here in verse 38, watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Uh, one of the other gospels says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you ever felt that in your own life? Man, I really want to do something and I want to serve the Lord and I want to pray every day and I want to read my Bible and I want to, but the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that, you're proven weak every single time. These poor guys are getting that lesson as many of us have had that same lesson. But, um, you know, it's interesting because Peter would end up being um, uh, a huge, um, now don't get me wrong. I, I don't believe he's meant to be the Pope. Uh, for those of you that are Catholics, like, yeah, Peter was the Pope. Because um, um, Jesus gave him the keys to the kingdom. No, uh, you gotta reread Matthew 16 and, and that whole uh, thing about the keys and who actually gets that. And, but, um, but Peter, no question, is a pillar in the New Testament. And, and maybe the, if you want, you can even say the main one, if you want. But, um, but I'm not really into the papal thing. Uh, that's, that's created by humanity. But, but because I, I bring that up, because why did Jesus mentioned this only to Peter. Why do you say, Peter, James, John, why could, couldn't you just stay awake for a few minutes? But he, he focuses in on um, Peter. Why? And I believe it's because much is gonna be required of Peter. Peter's gonna fail big this night. We know it. We talked about his failure, but, um, but he's gonna be exponentially used powerfully by the Lord. 
There's a scripture in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. You can jot it down, 1248 Luke, um, where Jesus said, for whom, whomsoever much is given, much is required. And I think that's why Jesus is gonna focus on Peter here because there's gonna be much required from Peter. Um, and the other disciples weren't held to account as much as Jesus held Peter to account. I think that's interesting. Do you ever wonder why you don't get away with things like some other people? And maybe why the Lord seems to convict your heart when other people aren't convicted about the same things? Um, maybe the Lord has got different things for you and maybe he's got a stiffer requirement. Maybe there's much that God wants to give you, so there's gonna be much that's required of you. And I think that's an important thing to um, acknowledge and realize. Well, they, they didn't have to do it. I wonder if Peter's like, why didn't you say something to John? He was snoozing just like me. Um, but he didn't say that. Uh, and I think Jesus had a reason why. Now let's talk about verse 38, where it says, watch ye and pray. Watch and pray is a, is a theme in the Bible, absolute. Um, can you jot down some notes on this? Um, Nehemiah chapter four, verse nine. Um, Nehemiah said, nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against the enemy. Um, they were watching and praying in Nehemiah 4.9. Ephesians 6.18, it says, praying always with prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Watch and pray, that's uh, Ephesians 6.18. Colossians 4.2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. What's this idea of watching and praying? Um, like, I thought we we're supposed to close our eyes and pray. Uh, you can, but the idea of watching, well, there, every time you come into this word watch, the Greek word there is gregorio, which means um, uh, to watch, to give strict attention to, to be cautious, active. See, this, is, this first definition is the, is, the, is the definition you gotta grab onto here. When, when the Bible says watch and pray, it, it means to be active in your prayer, watching, giving attention to what's going on and being cautious about what's up ahead. The second definition, to take heed lest through remission and indolence, some destructive calamity suddenly overtake one. That also plays into this when Jesus says, can't you watch and pray? Um, why is Jesus talking about watching? Um, because Jesus knows the gravity of the moment and it's time to be alert. It's time to be as clear-headed as you possibly can. That's this word, Gregorio, which means uh, to be actively giving attention to, being ready for what comes your way and, and through the method of prayer, watch and prayer. Have you ever thought of preparation uh, for intense things as being prayer? You have a big business meeting you know, tomorrow at work and it's kind of a make or break it. It's kind of a lose it or, or, or win it. Um, how do you prep for that? Well, I get my information together and I take get my talking points all bulleted and I, but have you ever thought of watching and praying over that situation? Stuff that's intense in your life. Uh, marriage trouble, have you watched and prayed because of your marriage trouble? Um, watching and praying is a thing in the Bible. Jesus, remember, casting out demons when the other disciples couldn't. He said, this one comes out only by prayer and fasting. Um, and, uh, and sometimes I worry that Christians, while well, we have intense things on our plate, that God wants to do great things in you and through you, but what are we doing? <laughs> Brett, is that how you sleep? I don't know, I just, isn't that the cartoons? The guy always sleeps like that on the cartoons. Well, are you sleeping and snoozing when you should be watching and praying? That's the question. 
Because uh, I wonder, you know, um, uh, you know, here's the thing. Um, Jesus is gonna be victorious in this most intense thing. The disciples are gonna fail in this most intense thing. One was watching and praying. He's the victorious one. The other ones were snoozing and they end up totally wiped out and messed up. Now, good news, the Lord's gonna be gracious to them, but there's some lessons here. In fact, um, let's keep reading. Verse 39 goes on. And again, he went away and prayed and spake the same words. You know, to let the cup pass from him, the hour pass from him. Um, and when he returned, verse 40, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. They're so sleepy, they're like, they don't even know what to say. Uh, wait, where are we again? Who, what, what's going on? You're in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm about to go to the cross. Like, this, this, this is such an embarrassing thing for the disciples. They don't even know what to say. Verse 41, and he came to them the third time and said to them, sleep on now, take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. Now, um, there's some lessons here that I want us to grab onto uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane before we get ready to go into the trial sec section of everything. But the lessons, the first lesson is the importance of prayer, um, especially when you're wrestling with tough things. Don't forget the importance of prayer. And um, can I just give some types of prayer that Jesus embodied or, or um, you know, modeled for us so perfectly? Um, and um, that is, um, you know, uh, first of all, submitted prayer. That's an important part of, of prayer, submission. Uh, it was not my will, but thy will be done. Uh, not a magic genie, you know, I want what I want, so give it to me, Lord. Uh, it was a submitted prayer. It was also a watchful prayer. He was watching like we talked about earlier. Um, you know, how can we pray watchfully? Moms at home that are, you know, stay-at-home moms, you, you've got this, this huge responsibility of these kids and are you watching and praying for your kids? Um, you know, uh, being alert and prayerful, um, you know, or praying for your kids before they go to, dads, are you coming home from work frazzled and tired or do you pull the truck over and watch and pray a little bit before you come through the door and prep for the biggest part of your day? The biggest part of your day was not, you know, making the deal at work or, you know, getting the contract or, or doing this or that. The biggest part of your day is when you come home. Have you been watching and praying? Because that's the most important part of your day. We could go on and on, but I love the, the watch, watchful prayer, but it was also preparatory prayer that Jesus was preparing himself for what was about to come. And that's the way you can prepare for intense things, to be prayerful. So the importance of prayer. Number two, I want you to see the lesson from Gethsemane that Jesus was orchestrating the whole thing. There was nothing here that was out of control, out of line. Jesus knew what was going on. There's no, you know, he, he, he knew what was coming. And, um, you know, we see that. He gave instructions on Palm Sunday. He gave instructions finding the pace for the Passover that evening. He was speaking in the temple about his death and re resurrection. He even said he was gonna be crucified. He was gonna raise from the dead. He knew exactly what's going. And now he says, let's, verse 42, let's rise up, let's go. The time has come. He knew what was going on. Um, he was orchestrating the whole thing. Um, this is important to note because Jesus did all of this willingly for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Well, it goes on in verse 43, and immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the 12, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token saying, whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. 
Um, and as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. Now, some uh, uh, linguistic scholars believe this word for kissed is actually to kiss profusely, like over and over. And you might think, well, that's a little weird. Not if you're in the Middle East. Uh, there's people that like, uh, they'll give you these big juicy kisses, you know, when you go to Middle East. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Mr. Nissan, I always tell you guys about him. He's an olive dealer, he olive wood dealer. And I go into his store, he's like, oh, Pastor Brian, um, 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 um. it's like, I'm just like, hey. I'm, I'm not even a guy that hugs people, you know? Uh, and then suddenly uh, it's like, um, I'm, I'm, I got this guy kissing. Uh, but I understand it's the Middle East and that's the way they go. But, but this is kind of the idea of kind of profusely kissing. So this is the kiss of betrayal. And, and, and the thing that kind of strikes me is, did, isn't it something that Judas had to identify who, which one was Jesus? Um, why would that be? Uh, didn't they know what Jesus looked like? Well, it was dark uh, there in the garden probably that night. They probably had torches or something like that. But, you know, the Roman soldiers weren't really, you know, savvy on who was Jesus, this one they were gonna apprehend for the, you know, the high priest and everything. So just for clarity, let's make sure Judas didn't say, hey, just go to the one that's glowing. Uh, he's in the middle of the garden. That's, that's Jesus, he's glowing. Um, he's got a plate behind his head, you know, uh, that little round plate and his hands are held like this. Um, no, that's not what he did. It, uh, you couldn't tell a fisherman from Jesus. That, that's what I think is kind of interesting. He was a normal dude um, and looked like everybody else. I think that's important. So Jesus, Judas had to identify Jesus to the others. Uh, I think that's kind of interesting. But verse 46, and they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Uh, which one was that? How do we know that? Gospel of John, John's the only apostle, is, it was Peter. Uh, Peter's the one who did that. that that's funny. Um, and Jesus answered and said unto them, are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is the only time really you're gonna see in this whole narrative where Jesus kind of calls them out on their stupidity and their hypocrisy. Uh, but he is doing it nonetheless. I find it interesting, you know, he's, he's basically saying, you know, I, I knew this was all gonna happen, but um, he states the quiet part out loud, sort of showcasing their mischievous evil ways. Um, I was around in daytime, why didn't you take me then? Um, and, and it was because they were afraid of the people and they were a bunch of hypocrites. But Jesus is saying this, that the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is once again reminding, the important thing here is all this is prophecy being fulfilled. Um, jot down a few of these verses. I'm gonna go through these quickly because we're running out of time. But, you know, Isaiah 53, three, the prophet Isaiah had all kinds of messianic prophecies about how he'd be despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's the whole garden of Gethsemane. And as we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's speaking as the Jews. Um, Isaiah 53, verses seven through nine, very messianic. He was oppressed, afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. We're gonna see him be silent as a, a sheep, deaf and dumb. It says, he'll be brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was stricken. Like this is amazing prophetic, 
uh, prophetic utterance by Isaiah about Jesus. Um, uh, verse nine, he, was, uh, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Uh, one more you can jot down, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. There's, um, these are prophecies many hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah the prophet uh, talking about Jesus. And Jesus is basically saying, this is being fulfilled right now. Uh, that's why he ends that whole little thing in verse 49, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. What scriptures? Those are just three of them I just showed you that are gonna be fulfilled in this moment. Well, we gotta move along here. So um, verse 50, and they all forsook him and fled and there followed him a, a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body and the young men laid hold on him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Brett, this, this is one of those places in the Bible. Why is this story here? <laughs> the first streaker in the Bible running, running across the garden of Gethsemane, blah, 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 there he goes off by himself, running naked. Uh, Brett, what's the way with that? The answer, I have no idea. Um, that's kind of a funny story. Um, uh, I grew up around this kind of stuff, man. In the hippies in Southern Oregon, man, uh, it was just bad. Tad Slaughter, he's back here. He can, he can uh, I'm telling the truth on this story. I took, we, we, there was this one day, we took a bunch of kids, probably 100 kids, uh, up to Applegate Lake for a fun summer camp. The problem is the lake was a mud puddle. It was so dry that summer. And so we made a, a second call and, and um, drove the bus up above Applegate Lake. There's a place where there's this really pretty part of the river and these cool swimming holes and it's really fun up there. It's just a little creepy up there because in, you know, there's still remnants of the 60s and 70s. There's hippies and stuff up there. So Tad and I, we, we, we drove the bus and, and, and we, le you know, we left some of the adults there. And before we brought the kids down to the river, we thought we better go down and you know, you're way up in the woods back there. So we, we, we went out and said, let's just make sure there's no skinny dippers or anything back there. So Tad and I went down there and as we were walking down, sure enough, this man and this woman are walking up toward the buses uh, naked uh, as Adam and Eve. And, um, and so Tad and I, pew, we take off to the buses. We're trying to turn them around, you know, as these people are walking. And, um, and we're like, yeah, this isn't a good place to swim. Uh, this is, but, um, but as we're doing this, um, I, you know, I'm trying to pull this 89 passenger Bluebird, you know, school bus, I'm trying to turn it around, you know. And then the worst thing you can imagine happened. This little girl's looking out the window and she says, that's my mommy. <laughs> and, and then she said, that's not my daddy. like that bus uh, put it in turbo charge, man, and got out of there. Well, I thought, oh, that poor little girl, she thought that was her mom. Um, actually, it was. For whatever reason, her mother uh, decided to, you know, hook up with this guy. And But, uh, well, the weirdest part of that story is we, we, we drove back down to Medford, which is like an hour-long drive, and one of our drop-offs was Kmart in Medford, uh, where we pulled the bus up and we're waiting for all the parents. All the parents came, picked up all the kids, except for this one little girl. The mom was horrified to show her face because she had realized that she was walking up on the bus and she probably figured out that everybody saw her. Um, 
And she was so, she just, Tad, how long was it? A couple, she was like a couple of hours late. And she kind of raced in and she yelled, get in the car. And uh, like, she wouldn't even get out of the car. And it was just kind of this awkward, horrible moment. The lesson there, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. The <laughs> uh, Bible's clear on that one. Um, anyway, I don't know why I told you that story. Oh yeah, naked. <laughs> naked people running around. Now, we don't know who this is, but church tradition tells us this is John Mark. Um, would I die on this battlefield? So I guess it absolutely is John Mark, uh, the one who wrote this gospel. Uh, I wouldn't die on that battlefield, but I think it's a compelling uh, argument. Um, you'll notice the language here. It says the young man, uh, that, that was kind of his, the young man laid hold on him, uh, young men laid hold on him. But who, who is this, you know, um, this certain young man, verse 51, the word young man could be anyone from 12 years old to 25 years old, uh, the, 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 the Greek word that's used there. So we don't know exactly who it is. John Mark would have been a young boy at this time uh, and probably lived in the upper room house um, with his parents there. So it's possible that the little boy followed Jesus and the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is just an account of the author of this gospel saying, I was there. Um, church tradition tells us it was him, but we can't be certain about that. Well, then what's the point, Brett? I think maybe, you'll, you'll hear all, you can find all kinds of crazy things about this guy running around naked and the meaning and all these deeper meanings. I'm a little cautious about all that stuff. Um, minimally, you gotta understand the chaotic nature of what's going on here. Um, uh, it, it's at this point, I think verse 50 and 51 go together. Verse 50, it says, they all forsook him and fled. As soon as they apprehend Jesus and Jesus makes the comment, all the scriptures are being filled right now, the disciples, they all bolt. Everybody runs for their lives, including this little young boy. But this guy doesn't get away. In other words, they would have apprehended all the disciples at that moment. They would have probably taken Peter, James, and John into custody and treated them like they were gonna treat Jesus. That's the implication. And they went to try to get them, but they all fled, except for this little boy didn't quite get away fast enough. So they grabbed his robe that was on and uh, that's all he was wearing. Uh, so when they stripped that, remember when you were in first grade and they'd try to catch you on the playground and they'd grab your jacket and you were, you'd wiggle out of your jacket and they'd be standing there holding your jacket. That's what happens here, except he wasn't wearing any clothes under his jacket. <laughs> but the chaos is a, a kid would rather run through the woods naked in Jerusalem than to be caught by these Roman soldiers. That's perhaps part of the reason it's here is just logically to say, this is a chaotic night and it's, it's mayhem and it's scary. Um, that's, it's, this is adding to the narrative of, of everybody fleeing. Uh, hopefully we're kind of seeing that. Well, verse 53, um, and they led Jesus away to the high priest and with him uh, were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Now, this is where we come to the next section of this chapter. And we'll wrap this one up quickly uh, because we've covered much of this already. But Jesus in the palace rejected. This is section four, um, basically verses uh, 53 to the end to verse 72. Um, so uh, we'll keep going, verse uh, 54. <coughs> and Peter... Uh, followed him afar off, uh, even in the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Um, this is where we saw, um, you know, Peter warming himself. This is the beginning of his, uh, you know, detour off the rails and his denial 
of Jesus. But I also wanna say this is the first of these six illegal trials that Jesus would be put through. Um, we're gonna call them kangaroo courts or sham trials. Um, uh, more in-depth study on these we did in Matthew because uh, Matthew's gospel had all kinds of detail on this stuff. We looked at that. Remember there were three Jewish trials, Annas the high priest, then Caiaphas the high priest, and then the Sanhedrin. There were three Roman trials, Pontius Pilate, then he was standing before Herod, and then Pontius Pilate again. So there were three and three, and um, that's what we're beginning here. Um, but in verse 54, we see the progression of Peter, uh, you know, his, his denial. Verse 55, and the chief priests and all the council sought uh, for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. Isn't that interesting? Um, if they were trying to convict you, would, would it be hard for them to find stuff to go, oh, look what this person did. If they look deep enough, you know, if you run for office of president of the United States today, you better have a clean record. Um, of course, I don't know, maybe you don't have to anymore. I don't know, it seems like things are crazy. But it used to be, if you had one little mark on your record, man, you were toast. Uh, but they're looking to find something against Jesus, but they can find nothing. Um, um, verse 57. Um, pardon me, verse 56. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. So they were contradicting each other. And there arose a uh, certain and bear false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with his hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. Um, so this is that whole thing. He was talking about destroy this body in three days, I'll raise it up. Now they're misquoting him saying he was gonna destroy the temple. But verse 59, uh, neither so did their witnesses agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus saying, answerest thou nothing? Remember the whole sheep dumb going to the shares? Jesus is saying nothing here. Um, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, thy priest asked him and said unto him, art thou the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Now that's that, that's that phrase, ego in me, that we've talked about, uh, I am that I am. And Jesus uh, says that. I think the Jews would have recognized that when he says, I am. And Jesus would fill in the blanks. I am the bread of life. I am the door of the sheepfold, John 10, 9. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. These are all things Jesus said, I am, I am. He is the great I am. God with, with us, Emmanuel. So I love that answer. I am. Um, and you shall hear, uh, pardon me, see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, what need we any further witnesses? Now, um, this is something we would miss. The Jews ripped their clothes when they were extremely upset. And that was a normal behavior, but not for the high priest. The high priest was a much more classy, together, you know, uh, you, you wouldn't have behaved like that. Um, if you read like uh, historians accounts, uh, the high priest ripping his clothes would have been unthinkable. Like that, that's, that's something we miss in this story. Um, but that's what happens here. So verse 64, they've, they've already said, you know, we don't need any more witnesses. We've got him. So verse 64, um, you have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face to buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. So this is where the suffering, you know, when you're blindfolded and you can't tell when a punch is coming, 
it, uh, it's, it's, it's more you know, destructive. And Jesus was now willingly taking all of this because of you and me. And it's hard to even comment on this portion of the story. It's just so um, amazing that Jesus willingly went to take this, as these guys are mocking and smacking him with their hands um, and saying, prophesy. He could have prophesied. He could have said, you know, um, you know may your heads explode. Uh, he could have done that, but he willingly uh, just took this. Um, verse 66 And as Peter was beneath in the palace, there cometh one of the maids of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, thou also is with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch and the cock crew. And a maid saw him again and began to say to them that stood by, this is one of them. And he denied it again and a little after. And they that stood by said again to Peter, surely thou art one of them for thou art a Galilean and thy speech agreeeth thereto. But he said, uh, he began to curse and to swear saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. And the second time the cock crew and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went through, uh, went and, he, and when he thought thereon, he wept. We looked at that whole section two, two weekends ago about Peter's failure. And we see Jesus, after he denies Jesus three times, we see Jesus give Peter three times to express his love for, for the Lord. And we see this beautiful uh, way the story works out. Well, there it is. We'll uh, dive into chapter 15, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for the willingness that you had to go to the cross for us. Lord, none of us deserve it. None of us earn the, the work that you did. We, we uh, gladly accept the gift of salvation. As we look at this story, Lord, we're once again humbled that uh, our loving Savior would have to go through this. And even the suffering of the agony of the garden, we, we perhaps don't even begin to comprehend what actually took place there. Uh, but we see the mayhem and this, uh, the, even the terror that was part of that garden experience. Um, but we also know that you are perfectly in control. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd teach us to be a people who watch and pray, to be prepared for the heavy things that come in our lives, and not just by preparing ourselves with resources or with money or with whatever we think we need to prepare, but show us how to prepare as Jesus prepared, um, watching and praying. Um, Lord, give us wisdom in these days that we're living. So Lord, may this study in this section of the gospel bring forth good fruit in our lives. Help us to walk with you, Lord, and bless these, your people, as we go our way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.